Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. Before green architecture was trendy, before it was hard to ignore the effects of the climate crisis, and before architects and designers were thinking proactively about their work in relationship to the environment, the great architect and MoMA curator Emilio Ambaz used his platforms to argue for greater ecological consciousness in the architecture and design fields more than 50 years ago. Last year, MoMA launched the Emilio Ambaz Institute for the Joint Study of the Built and Natural Environment as a platform for fostering dialogue, promoting conversation, and facilitating research about the relationship between the built and natural environment, making the interactions between architecture and ecology more visible. Despite its namesake, the Institute is not focused on Ambaz's work, but rather uses his thinking as a springboard to understand these relationships and these issues today. The Institute's inaugural director, Carson Chan, has been thinking about these ideas at every scale over the last decade. Before joining MoMA as the Ambaz director and a member of the Department of Architecture and Design in 2021, Carson worked as an architecture writer, curator, and educator. He is a founding editor of the Current Collective for Architecture, History, and Environment, an online publisher and research platform, and co-founder of Program, a project space and residency program in Berlin that tested disciplinary boundaries of architecture. As a longtime fan of both Emilio Ambaz's work and Carson's work, I was excited to have Carson on the show to talk about the Institute's goals and development and how thinking about the relationship between architecture and the environment forces us to redefine both. We also talk about his work as a writer for publications like 032C, moving from practice to curatorial and critical work, how he thinks about audiences, as well as his fascinating PhD dissertation at Princeton, which focuses on the architecture of public aquariums in the post-war United States. Carson is doing really important work, I think, in foregrounding the environment, in the study and discourse of architecture and design, and it was great to hear his thoughts on the evolution of his own work and what he can do now that he's in this position at MoMA. As always, links from the references that we talk about in this episode are available at scratchingthesurface.fm. If you like the show and want to support its ongoing development, you can join us on Patreon for as low as $3 a month. You can visit us at patreon.com slash surface podcast for full transcripts, bonus episodes, uh, additional interviews, as well as other sorts of fun content. Patrons help keep the show going and get all sorts of fun bonus content each month. We really couldn't do it without you. Thanks for listening, and here is my conversation with Carson Chan. You, I guess it was last year at this time became the director of the Emilio Ambaz Institute for the Joint Study of the Built and Natural Environment. Was that the right, is that the right name? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful, yeah. We don't have an acronym. At MoMA, the Emilio Ambaz Institute for the Joint Study of the Built and Natural Environment. Uh, this is sort of a new research um, kind of curatorial project at MoMA. And to begin, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about what is this institute um, and how does it sort of fit into the larger uh, larger work that MoMA is doing? Well, I mean, how what the institute is, is um, in many ways still to be defined. You know, as you mm. said, it's only a year old. Um, but, you know, it's 
it's something, as you said, it's an institute that started um, at MoMA last year. Um, and it's the brainchild, basically, of Emilio Ambas, um, who was a curator here at MoMA, um, you know, about 50 years ago. And um, his work, you know, from the 80s onwards, and even, even a bit before, um, was really concerned about, you know, how architecture interacted with um, nature, let's say. Um, and he, you know, likes to talk about, you know, himself as really thinking, you know, before many other people were um, about, you know, what he calls green architecture. And so um, he wanted to um, start this institute and approached MoMA and, um, you know, it started last year and here I am. And so, yeah, after a year, you know, we've begun to define what it is, but um, I mean, it's a semi-autonomous entity okay, within the museum's architecture and design department. And, um, and it's meant to focus on addressing issues concerned with the built and natural environment, um, specifically the fraught relationship between architecture and the natural world. So, and this could be addressed through, um, you know, normal museum activity like exhibitions, um, publishing, catalogs and whatnot, um, lecture series, um, discussion series, um, but also other activities as well. This is maybe a weird question. I did not realize that Emilio was sort of the one who sort of went to MoMA and said, hey, I want to do this thing. Um, and I think it's important to note that this is not just like a, you know, a way to continue talking about his work. It's, you know, you're, it's from what I've seen from the outside, you're very interested in sort of furthering these discussions in a contemporary context. But what's interesting in what you just said is how sort of nebulous this was. And I'm wondering what the, when you came in, what was like the selling point or how was this des described to you as like a, uh, you know, taking this sort of directorship role? How'd you kind of think about something so nebulous like that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what attracted me to it. I, I wouldn't say nebulous, but I, I would say, I guess nebulous in the sense that it's, you know, um, to be defined. Uh, yeah. And um, that's sort of what attracted me to this role in the first place. Um, you know, MoMA has, let's say for the last hundred years, um, been quite a powerful platform in defining how we talk about architecture. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to, you know, my, my work in the last, let's say, 10 years has been focused on um, architecture and environment. Um, how architects defined environment, let's say, um, specifically in the U.S. context. And so being in a position that is able to help redefine MoMA's definition of architecture was something that was very attractive to me. Um, you know, more specifically, uh, modern architecture, let's say, you know, is, was very much defined through um, its formal attributes, how buildings looked, how they were designed, um, and in many ways, the biography of the architects, you know, behind these buildings was, um, you know, very important to um, MoMA scholarship historically. Um, what I wanted to do is to help rethink and um, redefine architecture as not something that's object-based, um, but much more process-based. Um, so everything from um, material extraction to the labor conditions um, surrounding the, the building um, to the environmental, climatic, racial, social, economic context of the building to the afterlife of the building. All that is architecture. And uh, the building is only just one instance uh, within this process. 
And so, um, you know, the prospect of having the, you know, the possibility of, you know, using MoMA as a platform to make the switch, um, to redefine architecture from object to process was what was, you know, really enticing for me. Yeah, I love that. And I've heard you, I've heard you use that sort of description before about rethinking of architecture as a process instead of an object. And I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about that a little bit more in your output at the museum and your output sort of at, at the Institute, sort of how you're thinking about that. And I think I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying this, but the, the object is easy to talk about and analyze in a museum where you're showing things on, you know, stands and walls and you know, sort of things like that. It's easy to sort of point and talk about those things. How do you make visible that process? Or, or maybe instead of visible, how do you make legible that process? So you've, you mentioned you're doing sort of lecture series and videos, but how do you sort of think about communicating all of those things in a space that historically has been so interested in objects? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, one thing to do is to redefine what we understand as legibility. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I so, love that is, um, you know, a drawing, you know, a floor plan, all that legible in the first place, <laughs> actually, you know, right. and, um, you know, for many people, for the majority of people, floor plans um, are not really that legible. Um, right. And even for architects, you know, floor plans are mostly, uh, yeah. you know, technical drawings. So um, the amount that they can, you know, convey in terms of um, an idea behind a project um, is also limited, we can say. And so, um, yeah, through video, through um, discussion, through, you know, other kinds of, let's say, time-based methods, um, I think we can get at a a wider definition of architecture. Um, I mean, maybe this connects to what I was doing before in Berlin, I co-founded a project space in Berlin called Program. And um, the idea with that project space, uh, this is between 2006 and 2012, um, was really to define um, what is an architecture exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do, we, how do we communicate architecture, you know, as you put it? Right. Um, and in many ways, um, architecture exhibitions haven't really been that thought of, you know, or, or that kind of, yeah, yeah. has been under theorized, let's say, you know, when we go to an art exhibition, we see the actual art. And right. when we go to an architecture exhibition, we often see representations of buildings. Right. And so the question really is, how do we exhibit architecture in general? You know, forget architecture as process, but how do we exhibit architecture in general? And um, one aspect of the research, you know, that uh, we did there was to work with non-architects to show architecture. So Mm -hmm. we would approach a dancer, an artist, um, you know, a musician, a filmmaker and say, make an architecture exhibition. And, um, and then they would make a show. And then afterwards we can, you know, look at it and analyze and say, is this expressing architecture? Um, And could this be an alternate way of showing architecture besides, um, you know, just representation through drawings and photographs and models. That I mean, I have so many questions about that. And I do want to talk about some of your, your non-MOMA work in a second, but I want to connect that back to what you're doing now because sort of 
concurrently with the Ambaz Institute, you're also just a curator in their architecture and design department. And how do the, do these ideas sort of, let me think how to ask this. Are, is your work focused on everything kind of being about the Institute or are you thinking about a lot of these ideas more broadly in the architecture and design department at MoMA? Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's a funny job. So it's, I'm both an architect, sure. I'm both a curator um, in the architecture and design department and the director of the Ambas Institute. Um, and as the director of the Ambas Institute, um, part of the remit is to work with all the other curatorial departments in the museum mm. um, and, and bring about, you know, um, environmentally themed or ecologically themed um, acquisitions or exhibitions in other departments as well. Um, and similarly, you know, that's the work I would do right. in the architecture departments. Like, so all the shows that you're sort of producing, those are happening kind of simultaneously with the Ambas Institute and the department generally. You don't see those as two separate roles. There's a lot of overlap. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you mentioned that sort of when you came on, you, there was a lot of defining of what the Institute could be and that there's still a lot of defining where do you see this going what are your goals now that you've been in in the role for a little over a year um what's sort of next for the institute or like what what's the ambition for it now that you've sort of settled in and have started to to kind of define it a little more i mean it's a yeah that's a great question and um you know i think i Part of how we think about architecture in this expanded way, um, as I was describing, also requires us to think about um, the scale of architecture in an expanded mm. way. And so, you know, what is, what are the you know boundaries of a building if it continues to off gas for the next twenty years, or of the power that um, is used, energy that's used to heat and cool it. Uh, comes from, you know, um, hundreds of kilometers away. Um, so where do we actually draw the boundaries of that building? Mm -hmm. Similarly, you know, if the materials that we use to make a building, um, you know, last for hundreds of years or took millions of years to, um, to produce, let's say, you know, um, how do we, what is the temporality of a building? So, I mean, right. in answering your question in a very convoluted way, <laughs> What I'm saying is that, like, all of a sudden, by thinking about architecture ecologically, um, the boundaries of what architecture is continues to grow. <laughs> and then I feel like at the same time, the boundaries of what I feel like is, you know, uh, what I should be looking at in my job continues to grow. <laughs> right. So it's nothing short of, you know, like changing um, the way that humanity lives on the planet. That's the only way to answer it. That's pretty ambitious. Uh, I mean, well, the, the reason that I asked that question, though, is because to me, when I was thinking about your work, 
this position that you're in now seems like it connects so much of the things that you have done before and builds on a lot of the things you've done before. It seems very natural. And I'm thinking program you mentioned seemed very related to this, but also the current collective that you co-founded and are an editor for um, with uh, Daniel Barber was on the show a couple of years ago after his last book came out. Um, that's a that's a publishing and research platform that foregrounds the environment in the study of architecture history, which sounds very similar to things you're thinking about at, at MoMA. And I'm wondering, sort of, aside from institutional support, aside from sort of name and reach of MoMA, are there things you can do there that you couldn't do with these things that you started on your own? Like what does sort of going in-house at a, at a big insti- institution like MoMA, what does that give you or, or what are, what's sort of, how does that change the ambition or the scale in some way? Yeah, um, great question. I mean, I think for one, it's a completely different audience that mm. I'm thinking about now. Um, with current, as you say, the the target audience for that is um, the academic audience. So uh-huh. PhD students, um, you know, professors, um, and the ambition being, you know, hopefully, you know, other interested um, individuals, you know, because it's all online and it's for free. Um, so, so, but with MoMA, there's a kind of immediately a very large general public um, mm, platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of, you know, what's been interesting is to realize the very many different publics that I'll have to address, you know, in this job. So um, if, within that so-called general public, there's, you know, tourists, there's children, there's right. also scholars, um, there are people that are, you know, very knowledgeable about um, art history and architecture and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then people that come here to, you know, um, spend time just looking at nice things. Right. And right. so how do I um, program? Um, how do I create um, programming, you know, to address all of these different audiences? Um, and that's, you know, one of the main differences. Um, you know, there are things that I do that are addressed specifically to scholars as well. Mm. Um, there's there, we did a project called architecture studio in the Anthropocene, which is addressed. It's a closed, um, conference. In fact, that's addressing architecture educators only, um, Mm. and impressing upon them the urgent need to, um, to talk about the climate crisis in architecture studios. Um, and then we have, we make YouTube videos as well. And that's for, um, you know, the many, many YouTube um, s- subscribers of MoMA's channel. And then just people that are, you know, surfing on YouTube, and hoping, right. you know, and then they'll, they'll come across a video about um, an architect um, who has thought deeply about the environment and their work. Um, and then, you know, hopefully watch the rest of the series. I want to talk more about audience in a second. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about sort of your background and how how you got to, to this position. So we mentioned program, we mentioned the current collective. Um, but you, you originally studied architecture. Um, and from what I understand, kind of very quickly thought maybe you didn't want to just be an architect. Can you talk a little bit about about that sort of the interest in architecture and then this, you know, maybe this move or this shift out of making buildings to thinking and talking and communicating about about the built world? Yeah. So um, I 
did my undergrad at Cornell. Okay. Um, and then, so this was in 1999. Um, and then I did um, a master's of design studies at the GSD, mm-hmm. um, f- specializing in um, history theory of architecture, um, which I, I enjoyed a lot, you know, um, just, you know, being given the time to really think deeply about um, architectural issues um, with a bunch of um, colleagues um, on a deep level, that was really, really um, enjoyable for me. In fact, you know, um, a colleague of a peer, you know, from that program, Fotini Lazaridou Hatagoga, and I started program together in Berlin. And so um, after that GSD program, I um, was offered a job in Berlin at Barco Leibinger Architects. Um, so I went there and I, you know, worked in the office. Um, and, you know, and I think it, I've worked in offices before, but I think the contrast between spending time reading books, um, going to a library, doing um, research, and then, you know, detailing, you know, high rises or something yeah. Um, yeah. was such a contrast that I, I realized that I really wanted to um, pursue other aspects of architecture um, when I was there. And um, during that time, I found a job at the Neue National Gallery, uh, working with Andres Lepic, mm. uh, who was the architecture curator there at the time. Um, and I started, um, yeah, working with him. So at the, um, and making exhibitions at the museum. I, I have this like thought that sort of occurred to me when, when, since we've been talking that I was not planning on asking you, but I kind of want to run this theory by you <laughs> um, because I, I, I'm thinking about you talking about wanting to redefine architecture and, and sort of this, this move to redefine architecture from, from an object to a process. And, and that echoes a lot of things that I've talked about and written about in graphic design. And that I talk about with my students in graphic design about kind of redefining what graphic design is and can be. And I've also talked about moving it away. Design is both a noun and a verb. And let's, let's think about the verb part more. And like you, I studied graphic design. And then when I got into sort of working as a graphic designer, kind of like, oh, is this, you know, I actually like reading and talking about this more. And it seems to me that people who sort of get into that position, they either leave it and they go do something else, or there's this sort of like move to like, well, let's expand it. Let's redefine it. Like, how can I still make this work? And I don't say that egotistically of like, oh, we can change what architecture is. But I'm wondering if, sort of that detailing high rises, does that have, did that have some influence on you and this work you're doing now and kind of wanting to think more expansively? Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I see what you mean, but I, you know, I, I see them as, I see that, I see it differently, a little okay. bit, you know, cause I think I, I really respect, you know, um, architectural designers and people that right, detail right. high rises. But um, I think what I pivoted into was um, curating and writing. So I didn't necessarily see myself as doing architecture when I was curating and writing, um, but I was doing those things on the topic of architecture and art. Um, and so that, yeah, I guess allowed me to stay within the material, but doing a, a different thing. And I think par- partially why I'm making that distinction is because um, I don't think they're interchangeable. 
um, being an architect or being a historian does not mean you're a curator um, and vice versa. And I think that that slippage, you know, happens um, too often. And I think, you know, just, you know, um, broadly speaking, curating and writing and curating and making architecture, they, these activities have different ambitions um, and they have different, um, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. I love that you said this because this was exactly what <laughs> Carson, you knew exactly where I was taking this because my next question, literally, I'm looking at my notes is, um, are writing and curating types of architecture for you? And it sounds like they're not. It sounds like that they are something different. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're different and they have different skill sets. Um, and, and one has to develop different skills to, you know, um, to, for those different activities. How, how do you see that architecture training then? Let me, let me ask it to you in a different way. How does the sort of training as an architect, being maybe perhaps a former architect, it sounds like, do you think that changes how you think about writing and curating? Yeah, I think it does. You know, um, I think an architectural training or thinking about, um, thinking through architecture requires um, thinking about many things at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, like a polyphonic choral piece. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, imagine if you're designing a building, you have to not only, you know, design for the occupants, but also there might be, you know, um, um, regulations or um, permitting, um, a lot of kind of, yeah, other aspects of that you have to keep in your mind at the same time. And I think mm. this kind of keeping many things um, in one's mind at the same time comes in handy for exhibition making, um, right. which in many ways, you know, I think about exhibition making um, as possibly not making architecture, but being able to test out architectural ideas in much quicker ways than making building. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So do you see, do you approach or do you view your writing work as different than curating or how do writing and curating fit together for you? Well, they fit together in that they're both about communicating ideas, mm. um, but in, but done very differently. Yeah. So is that process differently? Like, is, is does one lead to the other? Yeah. For some people, maybe. Yeah. Not for me so much. Oh, interesting. Guess, yeah. When I think through an exhibition, it's really. It um, is an exhibition. Yeah. From the beginning, you know, like how does one enter the space? What do you see? What are the sight lines um, from one object to another? Um, what are the adjacencies between objects? Um, you know, what's the color of the space? What's the temperature of the space? All that. So the space itself, you know, for me is what's interesting for an exhibition. Whereas a text, it's, um, I don't know, I guess you have to seduce people in a different way. So, I mean, maybe, you know, I, when I studied writing in, in graduate school, I, like I said, I came from a graphic design background and just by chance, my writing professor in graduate school was a former architect. And, and I think some of his language sort of seeped into my own writing process. And I, I talk about writing very visually and very spatially even. Mm. I think a lot about the structure. I think about the way I think about like laying out a page uh, and the rhythm of, you know, designing a magazine or something think it, it is influencing how I also think about writing. And I don't mean that as in like I'm visualizing the writing on the page, but I'm thinking about the rhythm, the pacing, as if it were a visual composition. Um, 
and you're talking about that in curating, but you do, it sounds like you don't think about or, 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 or the sort of the, the spatial aspect of writing is not something that you're kind of thinking about. So how do you, what is the, how do you think about like making the argument in writing versus curating? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you that I'm, I'm asking this question as somebody who writes a lot and is interested in curating, but has not. And so I'm, I'm perhaps just right, kind of like right. trying to figure out how to make those connections myself. Well, you know, now that you're asking, you know, I think, um, and I'm just like, you know, thinking aloud here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe I'm approaching writing more like, you know, an exhibition um, yeah. in the sense that there are um, elements in there that I know will be in there somehow. But how one gets from one point A to point B, um, you know, doesn't need to be determined to begin with. Mm. Um, so in the way that I, you know, imagine people meandering through an exhibition, that's sort of how I think about writing. So I, I mean, uh, obviously I was taught, you know, the hamburger method, you know, the thesis, <laughs> then example, then conclusion. Um, but I've been more interested in when I'm able to write um, in a much more, um, let's say, an, like an evolution of ideas, you know, one yeah. connecting to another, connecting to another kind of way. So I don't know, maybe that would be an answer that I, uh, think about writing more um, as a kind of meandering through different ideas. And this is maybe a way to kind of come back to the the question of audience. And you're t you were earlier talking about just the different audiences at MoMA and sort of thinking about the tourist versus uh, an architecture educator. And you've written for all sorts of pub publications. And I'm wondering how that, and you've curated for all sorts of different types of institutions too. How do you think about audience in the shaping of both the content itself and the structure? And I imagine that, you know, you're writing for O32C, that audience is very different than a MoMA audience, which is very different than your, like your Instagram project client, Climate Lockdown. Um, how does audience or that sort of transfer of ideas change the shape and the tone of what you're communicating or the, the tone of the idea? Yeah, I mean, it, it completely does. You know, I can remember, let's say, um, there's a exhibition I made in Berlin, um, probably more than 10 years ago now called Material Worlds. Hmm. Um, and that um, I understood that I was communicating to very um, specialized audience of gallery goers and artists um, and people that cared about art um, in Berlin. Mm. And so um, the premise of it and also the way I selected um, um, works for the show, you know, was able to be quite esoteric um, and there was, you know, good reception for that. Um, and here at MoMA, I, yeah, as I said, you know, there's the many different audiences that I'm much more aware of now. And so, um, you know, for example, for the upcoming exhibition that will that I'm making now that will open next uh, September about the history of environmental thinking and architecture, um, I'm conscious of having, you know, if there's a, a selection of drawings by Ian McCarg, let's say, you know, I would be conscious of trying to find large ones that are colorful. Um, that would be pleasing for children, let's say, um, because oh, interesting. yeah, but at the same time, you know, it, it should also hold water for dollars. And, <laughs> That's and what I was going to ask. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's no shortage of material out there that does all of these things, you know, 
Um, I yeah, there are some things that you know, like a, a document. You know, for example, um, we're going to be showing um, Serge Chermayev's um, mm-hmm. notes on um, the first environmental um, design class at um, GSD from 1953. Oh, wow. Um, so these are notes that would be only, you know, probably <laughs> right. interesting right. for scholars. Um, and then, you know, other people just won't pay attention. Um, but then there, you know, so there's a balance between, you know, what you have, um, you know, in the exhibition. And hopefully everyone comes away thinking that this was a show that, you know, was very, geared, had their interests, you know, in mind. This is so interesting to me, and I'm not sure how to ask this question. So, like, you think about it as, like, a full sort of experience where everybody who comes through will get something, but everything individually doesn't need to be for everybody. You know, you know what I'm like? That's what I'm, like, I'm, I'm interested in, like, this idea of the tourist who just walks through and the architecture educator who walks through how they both get something. And it's not that the whole exhibition is communicating everything to to both of those extremes, but there are there are ways to relate for both. So the architect educator isn't walking through thinking like, oh, this is completely, you know, simplified for, you know, this is not for me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the ambition anyway. You know, um, how whether or not it, it works in reality is another question. I mean, one thing I realize is that you can never um, anticipate how people will receive right. um, something that you exhibit. Right. Um, and it's not a bad thing, but it's just um, part of how, and I think we should understand this um, in architecture too. You can't design a building to have people experience it in a very specific way. Um, everyone will right. always come out, you know, experiencing it the way they do. Um, and that's fine. And that's also what's really interesting about, you know, architecture and exhibitions or, you know, the intersection between these two is that there's, it's contingent on the subjectivity of the visitor. Right. You, you, you are a longtime contributor to 032C, the, the sort of very fascinating and idiosyncratic <laughs> publication slash fashion brand. Uh, and a lot of your writing there is about or are interviews with people who are maybe not who we would consider architects or people within sort of the architecture world. You've interviewed David Simon, uh, creator of, of Wire, uh, Rick Owens, Kay Blanchett. How, does that work sort of connect? Do those conversations sort of connect to this larger critical project of yours? Or is there what, what do you get out of those conversations or how does that sort of fit into this work? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, 032C um, has been a kind of um, exercise in training um, the curiosity muscle, let's say, Mm. you know, so I, you know, I think I've described it once as um, a kind of rogue, you know, um, grad school seminar that, you know, ended up being some kind of a, you know, a magazine um, and now also a clothing brand. Um, but the idea, you know, Jörg, um, the um, founder of the magazine, I think approaches material in that way, you know, just like things that are fascinating mm. um, for him are becomes things that we we look at. You know, William Volman, um, uh, novelist who writes these really long um, research-based novels, you know, 1,000, 1,500-page things, mm. um, became something that Jörg was interested in. So 
um, I ended up reading a bunch of these and then interviewing the author. Um, and we devoted, I think, like 50 pages um, wow. at the beginning of the magazine um, to, um, to his work and his writing and reprints and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we ended up having, you know, um, fashion editors from the New York Times, you know, writing and saying, this is amazing. Thank right. you, you know, right. for right. just showing interesting stuff, you know, and I think, um, you know, whether it's, and I, th- and I approach all the interviews um, through myself, right. um, meaning that like through, you know, as you asked, you know, how do we think through architecture? Or what's an architectural way of thinking? And how, how is that, yeah. um, you know, uh, adaptable to curating or writing? And so when I talk to someone like Kate Blanchett, you know, um, I ask her questions about space making um, mm-hmm. and so forth, you know, and, um, and then when I talk to Rick Owens, we talk about form making, you know, and so it's, um, always through, you know, my own lens and interest. Um, and in the end you have a conversation that, um, you know, doesn't usually appear, you know, um, right. Yeah. It's not the normal kind of conversation in the end. A lot of your work now is sort of about, broadly the architecture and the built environment is there do you see that as like the unifying theme of all of your work that even these kind of more pop culture-y type interviews that are they're sort of filtered into that is there some sort of like broad thesis that defines a lot of your work um i wouldn't say there's a broad thesis that defines the work i well let's say the broad thesis has been you know questioning the definition of architecture (laughs) <laughs> and questioning the um, the communication of architecture, yeah, um, that has been a, a broad theme, let's say. But I would, but now or in the last ten years, um, it's about environment and architecture specifically. And where did that? Where did the environment part come in, or how did that sort of start? I have a couple of questions as we start to wrap up about sort of your your Princeton dissertation and climate generally. But where did that interest, or how did that start to intersect with? this kind of larger question of redefining and communicating architecture. Yeah. You know, so um, when I started Princeton 2014, um, I started the PhD program there and I applied with a topic on the history of 20th century or early 20th century German architecture exhibitions. Mm. Um, Specifically, you know, the, um, Ludwig Hoffmann's exhibitions and, okay. and buildings. And um, that's what I was going to work on. And then, you know, at Princeton, I started taking classes in environmental history. Um, uh, and then I, I got really into um, that and kind of, you know, putting it together and thinking that, oh, I mean, in fact, architecture is an environmental discipline itself right. um, that, that in many ways doesn't recognize that fact. Um, and so there was a class there um, on global histories of environment. Um, and um, in the end, I ended up writing a, a paper about aquariums. Right. Um, I had visited a friend who moved to Atlanta, um, a friend, Victoria Camblin, who was working as the uh, chief editor of art papers at the time. And when I went to visit her, um, we went to the Georgia Aquarium um, and it struck me as this kind of very strange um, kind of um, confabulation of things from around the world and different uh, sectors yeah. and categories. 
Um, it's founded by the owner of Home Depot, um, and it was built on land that's owned by Coca-Cola. Um, a lot of the fish from around the world um, were um, delivered there by FedEx because um, Home Depot has a relationship with them. Um, George Pacific is a huge funder, um, and okay. they make toilet paper, for example. Oh, um, right. And, right. and so all of these different corporate um, international um, elements were um, visible in this exhibition of wildlife. Um, it's, and, and this yeah. idea, the ambition of putting the ocean in a building just kind of um, captured me as well. And so I ended up writing about uh, that aquarium for, for um, that class um, and then you know, continued to develop it as my dissertation topic. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to. T I wanted to sort of use the rest of our time to talk briefly about aquariums because, and and sort of your interest in them and your research around them because I'm fascinated by them also and had not, and and had uh, you know my my interest in them comes from the sort of exhibition quality of it, the design of them, also this sort of um, sort of like faux reality that is created this sort of uh, human made naturalism i love kind of seeing the seams of an aquarium or even like a zoo generally you know sort of seeing where like the fake naturalism ends and you you sort of are taken out of that a bit uh why did the aquarium become such a a easy way for you to sort of talk about these interests for you and what is it about what is it that we can sort of learn from aquariums about the relationship between architecture and the environment. Yeah, well, you know, the aquarium um, is precisely the kind of combination between ex my interest in exhibitions yeah. Yeah. and interest in environment. Um, there are exhibitions of the environment, right? And right. so um, that's where that began. But it be it became um, much more than just an interest in the architecture of aquariums. But I started to understand... I understood the aquarium as, um, I guess, the theoretical object at the center of the, of the study. And the aquarium became a kind of um, lens to see um, larger ways in right. which architecture interacts with the so-called natural world. Um, and, you know, in many ways, the aquarium, um, I understand now, as a kind of microcosm of the way we um, view and interact with um, the world ecosystem, and you and you've talked about or written about aquariums also being sort of tools for geopolitics and sort of soft power. And how does that sort of relate to you know how how does an aquarium sort of serve government interests in this way also? Well, I guess yeah, you know, specifically in uh, the mid twentieth century, um, you know, during the Cold War. Aquariums and oceanography, you know, more broadly, um, is a science that required international communication. Uh, and so yes. how do you, you know, have open a line of communication, you know, across the Iron Curtain if you're not supposed to be communicating across the Iron Curtain? <laughs> well, right. oceanography, you know, was one way to do that. And, um, you know, JFK, you know, made sure to um, highlight oceanography um, in his first State of the Union address. Um, and in fact, you know, commissioned um, Roche uh, Dinkerloo and also uh, the Eames right. office right. to design, you know, um, the National Aquarium and Fishery Center 
um, which uh, was going to be right next to the Jefferson Memorial in the center of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine the world's biggest aquarium next to the memorial for one of the founding fathers, yeah. that was, you know, um, the kind of role or the idea of, you know, that this institution would have this kind of um, geopolitical um, symbolism. Did you finish the dissertation or are you still working on it? Yeah, I haven't finished the dissertation. Okay. Um, but it'll, it'll come. <laughs> and and we'll, I mean, do you have plans for this to be a book or something? Like, I feel like this this research is so broadly appealing. I would, I want this in sort of a book form. <laughs> yeah, you know, in fact, um, I mean, it, you know, in many ways you talked about how, you know, my the work I was doing before and how it kind of applies to the work I'm doing now. Um, in many ways, the research I'm doing, you know, through the Ambas Institute um, is a continuation of my yeah. work too. Um, so, you know, the kind of focus on architecture and environment um, during the PhD is, you know, exactly the focus on architecture and environment right. uh, that I'm doing at the museum. Um, different audience um, and a wider kind of uh, broader kind of topic. Um, but yeah, that has been great. Yeah. Yeah. So what's uh, what's next for you? You're a little over a year as as director of the Ambas Institute. You're curating shows. You're working on your dissertation. What uh, what sort of what are you interested in now, or what's sort of the f next in your thinking? I mean, I guess next in the thinking is to um, think about how you know what what projects you know to. Um, mm -hmm undertake through the Institute. Um, you know, I spoke earlier saying that, you know, the remit of um, architecture is basically how humanity lives on the planet. Right. Um, but there's also, you know, realistically, there's also, you know, what the museum can do and what the museum can't do. And so figuring that out um, and seeing how I can maximize, um, you know, the urgency of talking about climate um, through architecture um, at the museum um, is what I what I would want to do, um, you know, to impress upon people that it's not just, you know, an interesting intersection between architecture and environment, but, you know, in fact, that the built building sector, you know, and architecture right. is right. the biggest contributor of greenhouse gases in the world. Um, it's 39, 40% a year. And so, um, the fact that we're not all talking about this all the time, you know, is a problem. And, right. you know, my work and ambition is to um, get it to the point where this is how we start a conversation, you know, mm. not not a kind of, um, you know, lead style, like slapping on a kind of in the end of, you know, validation of some kind of, um, you know, project done, but it's, a, it's an ongoing kind of, process of trying to um, reconfigure the way we understand architecture as fundamentally an environmental question. It is ironic that you just talked about this being the beginning of a conversation and an ongoing conversation, but that's actually a really nice way to end <laughs> this conversation. So I'm going to ask you the question that I used to end all of these. What are you reading right now? I'm reading um, a lot of writing um, by and about um, indigeneity. Um, well, I'm currently reading, you know, the oral histories of the Yavapai people, um, and 
because um, for the last, uh, let's say from the 40s to the 90s, they were involved in trying to um, get something called the Orm Dam um, um, project overturned. Uh, and it would have, it's a dam in um, Arizona close to Phoenix, um, just southeast of Phoenix, um, that would have flooded three quarters of uh, their property. And so, um, yeah, reading about the kind of um, the oral traditions around that has been really generative for me. You know, where to start? But, you know, part of thinking about this exhibition that um, uh, for next year is to think about um, the origins and the, the reasons for what I'm calling environmental architecture in the first place, um, especially in the U.S., and in many ways, you know, one can trace it back to, of course, industrialization, um, the need to address pollution and all that. But then where does that come from and how does that, you know, um, how does that come to be? And then there is, of course, you know, the question of uh, colonization um, and then the eradication of the very people who have the knowledge of how to build ecologically in the first place. And, you know, so kind of a going backwards and thinking, well, how do we, um, yeah, yeah, understand the, this context, the U.S. context, um, and environmentally, environmental thinking, ecological thinking. Uh, what are the roots of that? So that's sort of what I'm reading right now. I really enjoyed this conversation, Carson. Thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show, and and congratulations on on the job and all the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. This episode was recorded on December 5th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.